The School at the Chalet, Chapter Eight, A First Prefects Meeting. Gisla, yes. Do you want me, Gertrude? I should be glad if you would summon a prefects meeting. Gisla lifted a surprised and inquiring face to her friend. A meeting, Gertrude? Oh, but why? Nothing has gone wrong. No, agreed Gertrude. But I'm afraid something will go wrong very soon. In her earnestness, she forgot the school rule, which said that during school hours, and save in French and German lessons, nothing but English was to be used, and dropped into her native tongue. Oh, Gertrude, you've forgotten," said Gisela reproachfully. "I'm sorry, Gisela. I was thinking about the meeting," apologized Gertrude. "Shall I enter my name in the order book?" No," said the head girl firmly. "It is not good for the juniors that they see a prefect's name there. You had better report yourself to Miss Minard. And now, tell me why do you think we should have a meeting? There's mischief going on in the school," returned Gertrude, perching herself on her friend's desk. "It is partly that new girl, Juliet Carrick, but I think Grizel Cochran is making it also." How tiresome! Gisela knitted her black brows at this information. During the seven weeks that she had been head girl, there had been no real difficulty to meet. This was partly because of the novelty of things to all the girls, but also her own personal character had a great deal to do with it. Miss Bettany had chosen wisely in choosing her as head of the girls. Bernhilda made a very good second, and Bet and Gertrude. Were rapidly learning their duties as subs, but the most reliable person was Gisela. Ready," said Gertrude. "Then shall we call the others? They are by the landing stage." "Yes." "Would you ask them to come to our room, Gertrude?" said Gisela. "I will await you there." Three weeks previously, Madge Bettany, after a long discussion with Mademoiselle and Miss Menard. Who had been added to the staff as mathematics mistress, had given over to the prefects a small room on the first floor for their own. Even if they have just four chairs in it, it will give them a feeling of being a little different from the rest of the school. She said, Miss Menard herself, a high school girl, had agreed, and the four delighted girls had accordingly that possession. Which they had read so much in their English school stories—a prefect's room. Miss Bettany had explained to them that beyond chairs and a small table, she could give them no furniture yet. But they had promptly joined forces. While Gisela brought some pictures and a couple of bowls of flowers, Gertrude pro- produced a set of bookshelves which she had induced her brother to make. Bernhilda contributed a pretty blue and white tablecloth. And a fancy inkstand, and Bed presented a little clock and a bracket on which to place it. In one book, Gertrude had read of the prefect's notice board. Careful questions had soon drawn from Joey all there was to know about this, and now a similar board hung over the bookshelves with notices of various kinds on it, all written in Gisela's pointed Italian handwriting. The two big bowls. Were full of alpine roses, and on this sunny afternoon, it was as charming a girl's room as could be wished. The head girl pulled up the four chairs round the table and seated herself at the head, paper and pencil before her. 
Presently there came the sound of footsteps on the stairs, and then the other three entered. Very smart and businesslike they looked, in their school uniform, which every girl now wore as a matter of course. Gisa looked at them with approval. The most English of English prefects could not have looked more orthodox, she thought. Gertrude tells me you wish a prefect's meeting, began Bernhilda, as she took her seat on Gisla's right hand. What is it that you wish to discuss with us? It is Gertrude's idea, replied the head girl. She thinks that things are going rather wonky, supplied Bet. And as Gisla paused to search for the right word, the head girl now made a little bow to her sub and continued, Apparently Gertrude feels that Grizel Cochran and Juliet Carrick are about to cause trouble. Myself, I have noticed nothing. But I have, said Bet, composedly. I quite agree with Gertrude, and I think Juliet Carrick is at the bottom of it. Why should you think that? demanded Gisla. Because until she came, Grizel Cochran never misbehaved, and she never rebelled against authority. But now she's tiresome, replied Bet. She is even rude. How so? She has not been rude to me yet. How has she been rude to you? I told her to go and put her shoes away, said Bet, and she said it was sickening how fussy foreigners always are. That was very rude, said Gisla slowly. What do you do what did you do? I said I was sorry she looked at it in that way, returned Bet. But, as I was sub-prefect, and one of my duties was to see that the cloakroom was kept tidy, I was going to see that it was kept tidy. What did she say then? queried Bernhilda, with interest. Said I thought myself everybody. Replied Bet. I told her not to be impudent, and saw that she put the shoes away, and that was all. I think it was sufficient, said Gisela quietly. And you, Gertrude? Talking after the silence bell had been rung, said Gertrude. I told her to be quiet, and she looked at Juliet and laughed. What did Juliet do? Laughed too? Yes, and shrugged her shoulders. It's not good for the juniors to see that in a girl as old as Griselle or Juliet. I don't think you need worry about the juniors, said Bet. Amy and Margia would never behave like that. And Maria is too fond of you, Gisa, to worry you that way. Nor would Suzanne and Yvette. Giovanna will be good, because she doesn't want to fuss with me. And I couldn't imagine either Frida or Simone doing anything but keep the rules. Joey, of course, will do as she's told, too. It really is only Grizel, and she wouldn't if Juliet didn't encourage her. Well, I must make a punishment, said Gisla. I'm sorry, but Griselle must not be so rude to the prefects. She thought deeply for a minute. I shall send for her and make her apologize to you, Bet, and to you, Gertrude. Then I shall say she must learn German poetry in her play hours. Yes, this is what I shall do. Will you fetch her, Bet? Bet got up and left the room to return ten minutes later by herself. She refuses to come, she said briefly. Refuses to come? There was consternation in Gisela's voice. But did you tell her that the prefect wanted her? Yes, said Bet. She just laughed and said 
If we wanted her, we could go get her. She wasn't coming to us. There was silence. No one has foreseen that Grizel would go to quite such lengths at this, and they were uncertain how to deal with it. It was, had they but known it, the testing point of the prefect system in the chalet school. Had they given way or taken no notice of the English girl's defiance, it would have been goodbye to all hope of self-government. Luckily for the school, Gisela Marini was made too fine stuff to throw up the game weekly. To her mind, there was only one course to follow, and she followed it. I must report the matter to Miss Bettany, she said quietly. But will you come with me? She will want to hear what you have to say. Shall we wait till you come back? asked Gertrude. Yes, I think it would be better if you do not mind. We will make haste. The two girls left the room and went downstairs to the sitting room. Madge Bettany, enjoying a much-deserved rest, looked up with surprise when, in answer to her come in, they entered, closing the door. Well, she said with a smile, what is it that you want? Anything wrong, Gisela? I have come to make a report to you, replied Gisela steadily. Madge's face sobered. To report a breach of rules? Must you, Gisela? All indecision had vanished from Gisela's mind now. Yes, I must, she answered firmly. Well, what is it then, dear? Sit down, both of you, and tell me. They sat down, and then Gisela unfolded her story, looking every now and then at Bet for corroboration. Miss Bettany grew more and more serious as they progressed, and when finally they had finished, she sat for a few minutes or two without speaking. As a matter of fact, she had herself noticed a change in Grizel's manner of late. She realized, of course, that after four years of such rigorous training as the child had had, reaction must follow with a greater freedom. But she had not expected anything quite so bad as this. She had no desire to punish Grizel. But this sort of thing could not be allowed. As for Juliet, she sincerely hoped that September would see her far enough away from the Tarnzee. I will send for her, she said at length. Where are you? In the prefect's room? Very well, then. I will come back with you, and she shall come and apologize for her rudeness to you. I'm sorry that this occurred, Gisla. I, too, am sorry, replied Gisla. I wish it had not been necessary to trouble you with this, madame. You are quite right to report it returned her headmistress. We cannot have this sort of thing occurring. Will you find the junior bet and send her for Grizel? Then I will follow you upstairs. Thus dismissed, they left the room. In the passage they met Amy Stevens. Please tell Grizel Cochran that Miss Bettany wants her in the prefect's room at once, said Bet, while Gisla passed on in silence. Yes, Bet, said a little Amy. In the prefect room? All right. She ran off, and Bet followed Gisela upstairs. They were greeted by a duet of, well, as they entered the room. Miss Bettany has sent for Grizel, and she is coming here herself, replied Gisela. A minute later, the headmistress appeared looking sterner than they had ever seen her before. She had just taken her seat. When there was a tap at the door, and Grizel entered with an air of somewhat forced defiance. Left to herself, she would never have behaved as she had done, 
but there was a certain weakness in Grizel's character, and she was easily led. Juliet Cochran was just the type of girl to exercise a good deal of influence over Grizel. In the first place, the, child, the child's generous piety had been aroused by what she had seen and heard Juliet's family life. There was no doubt that Captain and Mrs. Carrick found their daughter a good deal of a nuisance, and the girl had a most unhappy time. Then again, Juliet had grown up in the class of Anglo-Indian society that considered the English the only nation worth mentioning. This had helped to foster this feeling. She had sneered at foreigners, at foreign prefects, asserting that they could not possibly act adequately. Grizel was feeling sore at what she considered Joey's extraordinary fancy for Simone, and all the time poor Joey, who would have given much to rid of herself of this friendship, and she therefore followed Juliet's lead with disastrous results to herself and to the other later on. Madge wasted few words on her when she appeared. You have been rude to the prefects, Grizel? she asked. A mumble was the reply. Madge took it as meaning yes. You will apologize at once, she said coldly. I will allow no rudeness from you younger children to your prefect. You had better understand that at once. Ask their pardon, and then do the penance they give you. There was a silence. Come, Grizel. There was that in the headmistress's voice which compelled Grizel to obedience. Without raising her eyes, she muttered, I'm sorry. Miss Bettany was wise enough to realize that it would be well to accept this. She waited till Gisla had accepted the apology and had set the culprit a short German poem to learn. Then she said, You may go, Grizel. And when the child had dashed away, she left the room. As for Grizel, she had rushed off in the pine woods, where she vowed, amidst her tears of shame and anger, that she would pay them all out for treating her in this way. Chapter 9 Simone's Exploit If any of the girls had been inclined to defy the prefects, Miss Bettany's prompt action over Grizel Cochran's behavior had put an end to any such ideas. The school was rapidly settling down, and the twenty girls who made it up always felt a great pride in it. All the day, girls stayed for lunch now, arriving at the chalet by half-past eight in the morning and staying till six o'clock in the evening. Lessons began at nine and went on till twelve. When there was a break for the midday meal, at two o'clock they started work again and went on till four. Tea was at ten past four, and then from five to six the seniors did preparation and the juniors practiced. Twice a week, Herr Arnsell came up from the Sparts and gave music lessons to the more advanced pupils, while the others learnt with Mademoiselle. Miss Minard taught mathematics and geography through the school, and Miss Bettany herself undertook the English subjects. French, German, and sewing were Mademoiselle's department, and she was form mistress of the junior's form. At present, they had only the three forms, senior, middle, and junior. 
Two days after the prefect's meeting, a long letter came from England from Mrs. Dean. Mr. Dean had been the senior curate of the parish church at home, but he had accepted a chaplaincy in the West Indies, and they were not anxious to take Rosalia there. Then Mrs. Dean had thought of the chalet school at the Tarnsee, and she wrote to ask if Rosalie might join them in September. If so, would Miss Bettany also have room for Rosalie's cousin, Mary Burnett? Miss Bettany wrote back, saying that she would be pleased to have them both. The same day, an Italian lady, whose acquaintance she had made, came to make inquiries with regard to her little daughter. Signora de Ricci was a charming person, and she was obviously very anxious that Vanna should come. Madge knew Vanna and liked her. So, with Evanne Lannis, there were four more pupils for the chalet school. Sitting on her desk in the middle classroom, Joey Bettany proclaimed the news of the coming, or two more English girls, in the autumn. How old are they? asked Margia Stevens. Rosalie's about fourteen and Mary's twelve, replied Joey. Oh, one for the seniors and one for us, observed Frida. Madge, who was beginning to get over her shyness. That will be jolly. Top hole, agreed Joey. We are spreading, aren't we? You'll love Mary Frida. She's such a dear, steady old thing. I'm glad she's coming. Simone, who was, as usual, glued to her side, changed colors at this. But for once, Joey took no notice. Truth to tell, she was getting thoroughly tired of Simone's jealousy and all-in-all -all friendship. There had already been more than one scene when Simone had accused Joe of hurting her on purpose and not liking her any more. The last time, unsentimental Joe had very nearly declared that she didn't, that she was fed up with all this fuss. But Simone had melted into tears at the, la at the least harshness and cried so piteously that Joey hadn't the heart to do it. Now, unheeding of all the little French girl at her side, she went on enthusiastically. Mary was a form below me at the high school, but they lived near us, and we used to play together. We were in the same netball team, too. And the other girl, Rosalie, is she also pleasant? asked Frida. Oh, yes, quite jolly, replied Joey. She's awfully pretty, too, and jolly clever as well. Oh, bother. There's the five to nine bell. And I haven't got my books out. Mine, Simone. She brushed past Simone as she jumped down and dashed to her locker to collect her possessions. The French child looked at her with big, mournful eyes, but Joey took no notice. At lessons that morning, Simone seemed unusually stupid. All her arithmetic was wrongly worked, and her dictation was full of mistakes, and she knew not one word about history, although, as Joey well knew, she had thoroughly prepared it on the previous evening. As question after question passed the little girl, and she either did not answer at all or else talked utter rubbish, Miss Bettany's brow grew blacker and blacker. She had just left the seniors after a tussle with Grizel, who seemed to have taken leave of her senses lately, and she wondered whether the young lady's spirits of lawlessness 
were infecting Simone as well. Finally, she closed her book with an angry snap. Simone, why have you not prepared your work? I'm surprised at you. You must do this lesson over again at half past four, and please never give me such disgraceful work again. Simone said nothing. She felt utterly miserable and unhappy, and only longed to fly away somewhere where she could cry her heart out. The others were looking at her with startled faces. It was so unlike Simone to have to be spoken to like this. Meanwhile, the bell rang, and under their head's watchful eye, they were forced to file out of the room in proper order. Nor were they able to speak until they had escaped with their glasses of lemonade into the open air. Then Simone was discovered to have disappeared. What on earth can be the matter with her? demanded Joey of a select group composed of herself, Margia Stevens, Frida Mensch, and Suzanne Mercia. Do you think she's ill or something? She was all right at first, replied Margia. She was talking like anything at breakfast, and she ate heaps. But look here. She knows that history last night. I know she did. And she never got returned work. Why, she's top of the form every time, protested Joey. Let's try and find her, proposed Margia. If she isn't well, Miss Bettany ought to know. She might be going to have measles or anything. At that moment, the bell for the end of break went, so they had to return their form room and French composition. Simone did not put in an appearance, but then, as Joey said afterwards, they all thought that she must be poorly and had gone to tell the head, who had sent her to bed or something. Mademoiselle herself did not miss the child. Simone was always so very quiet and inconspicuous, and naturally she did not require nearly as much attention as the others. The last lesson was geometry with Miss Minard, and as the little French girl's arithmetic was appallingly backward, it had been decided that for the present she should concentrate on that. When, however, she did not put in an appearance at Mettingensen lunch, Miss Bettany promptly inquired where she was. In bed, I think, replied Joey, with equal promptness. The head's black brows were drawn together in a frown of perplexity. Bed? But why? Who sent her? Isn't she well? Mademoiselle. I know nothing, replied Mademoiselle. I have not seen her since this morning. Nor I, replied Miss Minard. She came to my arithmetic lesson, of course, but she doesn't take geometry, and I haven't seen her since before recreation. Miss Bettany got up, looking disturbed. Joey, why do you think she has gone to bed? Did she tell you she felt poorly? Oh, no, replied Joey. Only she got all her work wrong, and it isn't like her, so we thought she must be ill. Run upstairs and see if she's there. Joey vanished to come back a few minutes later, looking flushed and startled. She isn't there, Madge, she said, using the forbidden Christian name in her earnestness. There's no one there, but... In her cubicle I found this, and she held up a long, thick plate of black hair. A gasp sounded through the room. Madge, Mademoiselle, and Miss Minard stood as if they were transfixed to the spot, while Joey Bettany stood holding that awful relic of Simone's before their eyes. 
as if someone had released a spring which was holding her, Mademoiselle leapt forward and snatched the plate from the trembling Joey. And where, then, is Simone? She shrieked in her native tongue. What has become of her? Nothing very terrible can have happened, Mademoiselle, said Madge, coming forward hastily. She must have done it for a joke or for mischief, and now is probably ashamed to show herself. Mademoiselle turned to Joey. Josephine, you're the friend of Simon. Why has she done this thing? Joey shook her head helplessly. I don't know, Mademoiselle. Honestly, I don't. I've had stopped her if I'd known. Things certainly seemed at deadlock. Amy had stopped crying mainly because no one was talking, taking any notice of her, and the rest just sat in stricken silence. Well, said Miss Bettany at length, we had better try to find her, Miss Menard. Will you take the table while Mademoiselle and I go to search? Yes, Joey, what is it? Oh, please, may I come too? asked Joey breathlessly. I just remembered where she might be. In the pines. I can find it a second time. Very well, said her sister. Mademoiselle, I will go through the house, and you can try this hidey hole you say she has in the pine woods. Put your hat on, though. The sun is very hot today. Joey only waited long enough to snatch her hat from its peg in the cloakroom before dashing off in the pines, covered slopes as at full speed. As she ran, her brain busied itself with the question of why Simone should have cut her hair, of which, as a matter of plain fact, she had been rather vain. She reached the hollow between the big roots, where she had found Simone before, but it was empty. There was no sign at all of the little French girl, and Joy's heart stood still for a moment. She had been so sure she would find her friend there. As she stood wondering whatever she should do now, a little sob caught her ear. At once she swung around and scrambled over the sticks and dead pine needles into its direction. There in a little heap lay Simone crying, as even Joey had never seen her cry before. The end of her hair, where she had sawn off her plait, stood up like the drake's tail, an effect which would have made her friend giggle helplessly at any other time. Now, however, she only trembled and sat down beside her, flinging an arm round her and hauling up on her knee. Simone, oh, Simone, what is the matter with you? Go away, sobbed Simone in her own language. Go away, Joey. No fear, replied Joey. I'm not going till you're ready to come with me. And anyhow, I want to know why you've chopped your wig like that. You once told me you wouldn't have your hair cut for anything. Why on earth did you do it? I, I thought you would like it, Simone choked out. You have often laughed at me because my hair was so long, and I thought if I cut it short you would love me and not leave me when those new English girls come next term. Well, Joey sat back and gasped. Of all the mad ideas, she said when she had got her breath back, I don't care whether you wear your hair cropped like a convict or trailing down your feet like Lady Godiva. Really, Simone, you are a perfect idiot, and why did you rush off here like that? I nearly had a fit when I went to find you in your cubicle and found only your pigtail. I look so terrible, sobbed Simone. 
And then I thought of what Cousin Elise would say, and how Miss Bettany would be angry, and you and all the girls would laugh, and so I ran away. Well, now you're coming back, said Joey firmly. I don't know what Madge will say to you, or Mademoiselle, but you can't stay here forever, and I want my lunch. I came out in the middle of it. As for laughing at you, I shan't, and I don't suppose the others will either. Now do stop howling and come on. At first Simone refused to budge, but finally Joey succeeded in getting her to come back with her. They reached the chalet, both of them feeling hot and tired. After one glance at the French child's hair, Miss Bettany packed her off to bed without one word of scolding, and when she had finally dragged the whole ridiculous story out of her sister, she sent that young lady up to her cubicle with strict instructions to go to sleep. Then she betook herself to Mademoiselle and unfolded the tale to her. In a way, it's just as well, she said, for all that mass of hair was far too much for her in hot weather. But, of course, she had no business to cut herself like that. You had better take her over to the crone's prince tomorrow, and then the hairdresser there can fix it. Now I must go to class. The next day Simone was taken to have her hair properly cut, and much to her relief the other girls said very little about the whole affair, although her cousin scolded her rudely. Although Simone deeply regretted the fact that she had ever touched her hair, and the more so since Joey Bettany, instead of being impressed by what she had done, criticized her the whole thing as idiotic nonsense. <laughs>